This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is U.S. Senate Minority Whip Dick Durbin of Illinois. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Bayer promotes responsible environmental stewardship. Bayer is part of Growing Matters, an industry-wide effort that launched the Be Sure Stewardship Initiative this spring. Visit growingmatters.org slash be sure for more information on product stewardship. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Illinois Senator Dick Durbin next. Deciding how to manage weeds, insects, and diseases that routinely attack their crops is just one of many decisions farmers must make each season. Protecting bees and other wildlife is a major part of responsible stewardship and why Bayer is part of Growing Matters, an industry-wide effort that launched the Be Sure Stewardship Initiative this spring. Through Be Sure, Growing Matters reminds farmers and applicators this season to use treated seed responsibly and follow the label to protect bees and other wildlife. Visit growingmatters.org slash be sure for more information on product stewardship. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. In addition to serving as the Democratic Whip, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin has returned to serve on the Chamber's Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry Committee for the 116th Congress. Durbin fears the current downturn in the nation's farm economy may be more of a strain on farmers and ranchers than the current farm safety net is prepared to bear. This farm bill that I voted for and had strong bipartisan support never, ever envisioned what we're going through right now. Never. I mean, crop insurance, that was the main centerpiece of it. We all agreed on it, Democrats and Republicans. But, you know, crop insurance is valuable, but when you're in a situation where Farm income's flat, where prices are going down, where exports uh, are disappearing, where tariffs are, are eating into new customers' uh, confidence in the United States. I'm hearing feedback from the Farm Belt in Illinois that goes way beyond what we were concerned with in the Farm Belt. I don't think it's the 80s, but some fear it. And if it were not for land values holding where they are, the shape that we might be in otherwise. Well, land values reflect the bet that it's going to end soon, you know, and I hope it does. The sooner the better. Now, having said that, I want to make sure it's clear. China has not been a day at the beach in terms of our relationship. Sure, they buy our commodities. We love that. We want more of it. But when it comes to their other trading practices, they're terrible, and they've been terrible for a long time. Uh, And I can see a coordinated effort to bring them in line for the good of the entire country. But to take it out the way this president has on tariffs, this made our farmers the, the front line of attack, and there comes a point where it, it really hurts them. So the question would be, and I'm interested from your perspective, why didn't the other administrations, both sides of the aisle, why didn't we take on China then? We did, but not effectively. They tried a dozen different things that didn't work, just to be honest with you. Oh, we're, whenever you confront previous administrations, Bush, Obama, you name it, oh, we're doing this all the time, tough trade talks. didn't work. It didn't work. And uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to say, well, the Democrats are right and Republicans are wrong. Both parties failed. Now we have this confrontation led by the United States. I wish it were a multinational effort to bring China around. Here's the problem we run into. you got a president who has a very strong ego, and you have a country in China that historically has been, they think, mistreated by everybody around the world. So now you've got these two kind of super egos facing one another. 
I can't tell you how or when that's going to end. So let's think a little bit about renewable fuel. Livestock always been a big part of Illinois corn and soy and soy protein. It's, it's been a big part of your state and of the country. But renewable fuel ethanol and the renewable fuel standard calls for 15 billion gallons of ethanol to be blended a year. This EPA says we'll do that. But then they're granting waivers. Up to 2.6 billion gallons of ethanol wasn't blended, and they're not reallocating. I had a talk with Chuck Grassley about that. Chuck, Republican, Iowa, Durban, Democrat, Illinois. But when it comes to these issues, he and I are on the same page. He's upset. I am, too. This small refinery exemption that they've created, one senator from Texas created, is out of hand at this point. I mean, we are basically exempting all of these refineries from doing their basic homework when it comes to RFS, renewable fuel standards, and that means less ethanol is going to be produced. And that is not a good thing, either for the environment or for our farmers. I'm afraid the Trump administration has bought the Cruz approach to this, and we're paying it for it in a very heavy way. There's plenty of talk of whether the EPA will meet its deadline for year-round sales of E15. Past that, what's the future for renewable fuel? Auto industry wants a higher octane. They want to be able to meet their CAFE standards. What's the nation's policy? What do you recommend regarding this? Well, there's several things that drive alcohol fuels. Uh, the fact that we would be homegrown, don't have to depend on foreign fuel, that's one of them. Uh, second thing is there are some people, and I have to be one of them, who believe it's a clean-burning fuel and it's better uh, for the environment. But when it gets down to the CAFE standards, that's really where it hits the road. If we're going to have CAFE standards that we are going to enforce and we are going to be serious about that in the future, you know, we've got to make this conversation real. This administration has not committed to it. In fact, they've gone the other way on many of these CAFE standards. Agriculture's had a number of buzzwords or acronyms over a period of time, and I think the word now is sustainability, and the word is climate change. And I spoke with a cohort of yours from Illinois, John Shimkus, who serves on the Energy Committee in the House, and the subcommittee that he serves has been renamed to the Environment and climate change. Where is climate change in policy debate now in 19, and where will it be as we go into 20? It's ironic today that I started the day with the intelligence agencies in a closed-door, top-secret, classified session, and they presented to us the major threats to the security of the United States and the world. And I went through the major threats, and one of them was climate change. They said extreme weather changing growing patterns are going to change the dynamics of economies and the dynamics of countries. They're going to displace people. If you ask why these people are coming up from Central America, you bet they want to live in the U.S., but they also are going through a drought. The subsistence farmers down there can't make it, so they come up here from Guatemala and places like that. So we've got to take climate change as a reality and face it, and it means doing something about it. So I decided to write a letter to all the farm groups in Illinois. I said, here's the national climate assessment that was just issued. It talks a lot about agriculture. I'd like your response. The corn growers led the parade in responding to me and saying, we're thinking about this, and we're thinking about how to address it. They were the most forthcoming of all the groups, and I salute them for that. They are thinking about how to change their practices in a way that is consistent with recognizing climate change and what we can do about it. They've already made efforts in the soil health industry in producing renewable fuel, and 
And you have farmers in your state and across the Midwest that have been farmers for generations. That didn't come by accident. They've always been protecting soil. They've always been looking out for water. But now they have helpers. They've got computers. They've got data. They're doing precision farming. They're finding out how they can actually farm effectively, productively, profitably, except for the tariff situation, that they can do this and and do it in a way that is consistent with good climate practices. I mean, that to me is smart. Now, there was a time when I would invite farmers in my office here and say, how many of you believe that human activity on earth has anything to do with the climate? Not a single (laughs) hand would go up. I said, well, I think it does, and maybe someday you will. Some of them are starting to build this in. And they realize they can't solve this problem alone, but they're willing to pitch in if they can still keep the lights on and hit the bottom line to keep their uh, farm operations profitable. I want to see if I can summarize what they have shared with me. They don't want to be a victim in the debate over climate change, and they also want to be a a villain either. And they shouldn't be viewed as villains. I tell my, my... I love them, the tree-hugging environmentalist friends. I do love them, and I'd say that in a joking fashion. I say, you know, when it comes to preserving the water, the air, the land, the farmers have more invested in it than we do that live in the city. I mean, this is where they live. This is where they've been. This farm means something to them and their family. So they ought to be allies, or at least in conversation and dialogue with one another. And I think we can reach that point. Voluntarily, they've already made moves toward cover crops and no-till farming. They're, they're making those practices that, fortunately, are good for the environment, but also are, are leading to better profitability as well. It would be wonderful if we could recognize that farmers still have capacity to improve and if Washington could work with them to encourage these practices. Well, you're talking my talk at this point. I mean... I, I used to every Earth Day, I haven't done it in a couple of years, but every Earth Day I'd go to a farm and I'd say to the farm community around there, show me what you're doing here. You know, show me these green strips, these filter strips. Show me what you're doing in terms of your practices of soil conservation. And when you tell the story that way, you say, this is what Earth Day means if you live on it and, and count on it every day of every year to make a living. So there has been plenty of consternation about the young congresswoman from the Northeast who offered a Green New Deal. Let's leave that to the side. It's it's been a a, a lightning rod. Practically, though, what does this town, what does this leadership need to do to bring the U.S. into areas that can help climate, but at the same time not bankrupt farmers and, and run manufacturing behind the rest of the world? Well, we ought to set some goals, and we ought to use what works in America. What works in America is a marketplace. Uh, government regulations, a big, thick book of regulations, uh, is not the answer as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we can create incentives for people to do the right thing, economic incentives to do it. Uh, you know, they talk about carbon tax. It's controversial, but every carbon tax that I've looked at seriously refunds every dollar collected back to the people. It basically says to those who are, have carbon emissions, reduce them. And if you don't, there's a price to pay. Interestingly enough, in downstate Illinois, just north of Mattoon, Illinois, uh, you may know where that is, on the southeastern part of our state there, they have an effort for carbon capture and sequestration. Turns out we've got a rock formation, sandstone structures, deep under the earth where we can store carbon dioxide without any danger. And so this could be part of, instead of mining for coal, we are using pipelines to put carbon dioxide under the earth, charging for it, and those who create the emissions see it's a better deal for them to store it than to pay the tax. 
Just a few days ago, Senator Wyden proposing legislation that would overhaul the nation's energy tax policy and also replace some existing tax incentives for things like biodiesel and next-generation fuels. It seems that climate change umbrella can have lots of uh, lots of amendments and lots of areas that, that can fall under that umbrella. And I hope that, that your listeners will, will look at it objectively. Uh, there are opportunities here, good opportunities, to do the right thing for the environment and also do the right thing for our economy and American families who count on it. You know, I think there's room here for honest negotiation, bargaining, uh, and I don't know about Senator Wyden's proposal, but if he's looking for alcohol fuels as part of the solution, I want to sit down with him pretty soon. Is there a place for coal in these generations to come for energy? There's a place, but it is limited. We've seen in the last couple of years, we've passed a point where uh, electric power generation used to be almost exclusively coal. Mm -hmm. Then we started getting more gas in it, and as of two years ago, there were months where gas, natural gas production, uh, created more electricity than coal. So we've kind of passed that point. On the, on the private sector side of things, a lot of businesses are moving away from coal, too. So it has a future, but I, I don't think it's a major long-term investment. Uh, it could have a role, but in terms of what it was in the past, I don't think it'll ever be that again. Some of the most um, troubled spots in creating that 18th Farm Bill was nutrition. And before the Senate Agriculture Committee, their child nutrition rules that need to be rewritten. What are your thoughts about that? Let's do it honestly. You know, I don't want anybody who's an ingrate, who's lazy, gaming the system to, to get by with it. But at the same time, we have people who are in complicated situations. Why isn't that person working? Well, it turns out that person has a serious mental illness. And you wouldn't know it. They don't advertise it. Why isn't that woman working? Well, she's got a child with child care needs, and she has some practical concerns. She doesn't have a supportive family. She's a single mom. We've got to look at these in real human terms. If there's somebody out there trying to cheat the government, I'm not going to cut them any slack. But we ought to look at the individual circumstances people face in honest and a human way. Senator, on both sides of the aisle in this upper chamber, there is discussion about tobacco and the age at which young adults can purchase the product and even vaping among very young adults in the country. Should that be addressed? Absolutely. And I'm a co-sponsor of tobacco and vaping age 21. Illinois just did that. We passed that state law. A dozen other states or more have done the same thing. Ask any high school or middle school principal in your home state, what's the incidence of e-cigarettes and vaping? And they will tell you, we got a problem. The Food and Drug Administration calls it an epidemic. These kids are buying these things and using them. And the companies, uh, I, I really despise them for this, sell these bubblegum flavors, candy flavors that these kids like. It has nothing to do with adults switching from tobacco to vaping. So I wish the FDA commissioner was a heck of a lot uh, more forthcoming in leading us through this. Let's talk about rural development as we look to a close here. The Farm Bill did and does have a rural development title, and broadband is in there. But are the funds that are in the rural development title, the Farm Bill, adequate to take care of states like Illinois and others where rural, rural folks don't have the service that many others require? There's not nearly enough in resources. We've got to view this as FDR viewed during the New Deal, bringing electricity to the farms. 
when he did it, it didn't make economic sense. It was too long to string the wire out to that farm out in the middle of nowhere and so forth and so on. We did it. And as a nation, we're better for it. Farmers are more efficient. We connected up America. We've got to do the same thing with broadband. And at this point in time, these communities come and see me and say, Senator, we've still got kids sitting in the library parking lots at night doing their homework because they don't have broadband at home. It's the only place to go. So when we sat down with President Trump, the Democrats did a few weeks ago, we said this is one of the things we want to include in any infrastructure bill, and he agreed. So we are at least at the same starting point. It's roads. It's bridges. It's mass transit, it's buses, but it's also broadband. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue is a man of few words when he's on point, and he simply said the maps that talk about broadband service in the country are fake news. Do we have a real measure of who has service and who doesn't? No, because we don't measure the quality of service, and that is important. The point you made at the opening here. There are new demands for Wi-Fi, for broadband, and you have to have a greater capacity to be able to participate. The old dial-up days are long gone. We're in a new world now. We're moving to 5G, and we want to make sure that all of America moves at the same pace. Right now, downstate Illinois, rural America is being left behind. So let's take the telescope out, look at the rest of 19 and into 20. What does Senator Richard Durbin hope for the country and that can come through both chambers? Is it infrastructure? What are, what are the things that you hope this Congress can accomplish? Okay, we've got a divided Congress, and we've got to be serious about this. There are some things that I'd like to see my Republican friends may not want to see. Infrastructure should be an exception. That should be the one thing we get together and agree on. And there was a promising meeting with the President. I sat a couple seats away from him, and I heard him make a commitment. Two trillion dollars, 80 percent federal, broadband included. It was ambitious. But I think where there's a will, there's a way, and there should be a will. Infrastructure is the key to our economy, and we've got to make it work together. So number one priority, infrastructure. Senator Durbin, thank you so much. You have a very busy schedule. You took time to be with us here on Open Mic, and you get the last word. My last word is uh, to the rural communities and particularly to my farmers. This is a tough, tough time. We're going to get through it together. Uh, we've got to do it in a sensible, bipartisan way. That's why you sent me here, and all of us should be dedicated to it. Our thanks to Senate Minority Whip Dick Durbin, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Bayer promotes responsible environmental stewardship. And Bayer is part of Growing Matters, an industry-wide effort that launched the Be Sure Stewardship Initiative this spring. Visit growingmatters.org slash be sure for more information on product stewardship. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.